My name is Scott Chaloner and you are listening to the Leaders Council podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. As regular listeners of our programme will know, part of our mission here at the Leaders Council is to bring you a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership in many different contexts. And today that mission takes us to Ivy Bridge, Devon, where I'm joined on the show by Mike Legasic, Director and Behavioural Investment Coach at long-established financial advice practice Manning & Company. Uh, Mike, very warm welcome to you and uh, welcome back. Your second time on the show. Yeah, well, uh, welcome to you too. Thanks ever so much for um, having me on again. It's always nice to catch up and chew the fat, sort of thing. It certainly is, Mike, absolutely. And uh, today we're going to be sort of looking into sort of three different aspects around investing that all investors should know uh, from your perspective. Um, one of those things is the fact that there is a definition between volatility and the permanent loss of capital. And it can be quite easy to actually sort of confuse the two or sort of get your wires crossed on this particular issue. So starting with that, Mike, what is the difference between the two things? Okay, well, if we accept that the biggest mistake that most investors make is panicking, doing the wrong things at the wrong time for the wrong reasons, that might be fueled by media frenzy, what they read, what they see on the TV. But panicking is too broad a term. I think you need to look under the bonnet of panic and you say, well, okay, panic is an easy thing to say. Panic, that's why they made some bad decisions. What causes the panic? And I've done this job, been in this profession for over 30 years. And without a shadow of a doubt, the thing that causes the majority of investors to panic is basically confusing volatility with the permanent loss of capital. And mm. um, there's a, a story I use as an analogy I use with all investors when I'm speaking to them, um, whether they're new or, or experienced investors. And I basically say to them, I ask them, have you ever been on a roller coaster? Um, most people say, well, yes, and they either enjoy it or they never did it again. And I say, well, if you, if you can cast your mind back to the first time you went on a roller coaster, if you're like most people, you'd have had mixed emotions. You sit yourself into the chair, you bring the bar down over your chest, that fits in a bit tight, you think that's a bit tight. And then you've got mixed emotions of apprehensions and a bit of excitement. As most, most people feel those mixed emotions. As you start the incline going up the steep roller coaster, there are already people thinking, what am I doing here? Why, why, why am I doing this? Put myself through it. And as you get to the top and start hurting down the other side, there are people literally screaming, get me off, you know, I'm going to die, get me off, or whatever. And then when they go through the loop, the loops, and they're upside down, loop, the loop, they are literally screaming, get me off here. They're terrified they're going to die, get me out of here. Now, all that up and down, the steep bends, the declines, the inclines, the ups and rounds, and the roller and the um, loop the loops, that's the volatility. So at the end of it, you come to the end and you get out, and you decide to go to the queue and do it again, or, or you'll never do it again. But the ups, downs, and the loop the loops are volatility. Now, have you managed to have gotten yourself out of your seat upside down, mid loop the loop? Then you're probably looking at permanent loss. So the rule that people try to well must have to try to understand is you don't get yourself out of a roller coaster when you're upside down in the loop. It's the worst possible thing. And likewise investors tend to panic and do the wrong things at the wrong times. So I would say seventy percent of what I've done, I've, I've studied behaviourally financial economics economics for about ten years now. Um, and seventy percent I would say of what I do with my clients in the whole relationship is managing people's behaviour educating them to make sure that they don't get blindsided by the biases and the mistakes that investors make 
because human nature is a failed investor. We are simply not hardwired to be savvy, clever investors. My job is if I can make sure that my clients and whoever I speak to don't fall foul of those common mistakes, then there's a far better chance they'll get a, a far better outcome than perhaps the next investor would have. Mm. And just sort of uh, going off on a tangent slightly, uh, how do you sort of go about trying to sort of make investors, where there are volatile periods like this, stay on the roller coaster until we see the outcome rather than sort of getting off that little bit too soon? You know, it's a great question. It's managing people's expectations. Um, You and many other people would have heard, I'm sure, many times mentioned by advisors who do my favorite work, They'll say something on the lines of, oh, Mr. and Mrs. Client, your investments can go down as well as up. I don't subscribe to that at all. I tell all my clients, without a shadow of a doubt, that if they're medium to long-term investors, which most of my people are, I tell them categorically their investments are going to fall in value from time to time. Not mine, not could, not many. They're going to. Um, and, and it's how they manage that behavior when it happens. I mean, Mike Tyson the boxer came up with a great saying years ago um, when he was in his pomp and he said everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face and then it all goes out the window Mm. so I manage my client's expectations I tell them and historically prove to them how often these events tend to happen the severity of them through history and how and how well they're kitted out to get through those albeit temporary declines because markets do not and never have gone up every day, week, month, and year. So I'm, I know I'm in, you know, I know I can say confidently that their investments are going to fall as well as rise from time to time, but it's how they manage to do it. And the way I do that is I send my clients once or twice a month a newsletter, or as I prefer to refer to it, a regular shot of sanity theorem. And it's basically re educating them and reminding them of the conversation you had initially and sending a financial band-aid to them mm. when we experience the type of volatility we've had over the last couple of years with COVID and the, you know, the tragedy in Ukraine. These things can do and will happen. If it's not one thing, it's something else. It's cyclical. But I, I have to keep managing my clients' expectations and making sure that they don't do the wrong things at the wrong time for the wrong reason. So it's got to be a two-way dialogue of communication, largely coming from me, to keep their head on straight. And, uh, you know, I'm very pleased to say that during the turbulent last couple of years we have with COVID and so on, my phone hasn't rung. I've had no one panicking or ringing up saying, get me out, or I don't know what I'm doing, what, what are we going to do? So that sort of proves testament to the regular newsletters, the continuing education from my website, saverbehavior.co.uk. It's all been designed to make clients better investors and to educate them without the jargon. Yeah, certainly makes sense. And it is very important to so you know, get them into that mindset where they're not going to panic, they're not going to pull out too quickly. And just going back to what you said, Mike, as well, about the fact that these are sort of temporary declines. So volatility is a temporary thing. On the flip side to that, things that do work when it comes to investment and do give you return on investment might not necessarily do that all of the time. And so there has to be a little bit of scepticism when investors want to get involved in what's working at a certain point in time or with some of these get-rich-quick schemes that, you know, cash in on the things that are working at that point in time. Um, Why do we have to be careful about sort of jumping in on such things, you know, with too much gusto? Well, it's interesting. Um, 
two of the wealthiest people in the world. Warren Buffett, he's about 91, and depending on which way the wind's blowing, is worth about 100 billion any time of the day. He's considered by most people to be the most successful private investor ever. He's been investing since he was 12. He bought his first shares in 1943 when America were losing the war in the Pacific. So it's probably not the best time. But he's seen it, done it, got the T-shirt. He's been investing all his life. He had an interesting conversation with Jeff Bezos, who owns Amazon, <clears throat> a little while ago. And Jeff Bezos said to Warren Buffett, Warren, I can't understand why people just don't do what you do. It's proven, it's cheap, it's simple. Um, it's a proven method of investing money for the long term to become you know, to make money and become wealthy. Well, why, don't, why doesn't everyone just follow what you do? And Warren Buffett said to Jeff Bezos, because nobody wants to get rich slowly these days, Jeff. That's the situation. When you say what's working now, I've never invested clients' money in anything that happens to be working now. So, you know, Brazilian teak farms, Dubai car parks, Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, if they want to do that and they've got money that they can afford to lose 100% and it doesn't affect their retirement, then they can knock themselves out. It won't be on my watch. I won't have any part of it. I'll give them my opinion, but that is a typical get-rich-quick scheme. And I like to use analogies. It is a great analogy to use that. And basically, if you imagine it's a turkey farm and you're a you know, human for a moment, you're a turkey, and you're uh, in with all your friends and family in the turkey coop, and life's great. The farmer comes in every day, he feeds you, gives you water, you're protected from natural predators, it's warm and cozy, life couldn't be better. And then on the 23rd of December, you get a strange feeling in your stomach that things aren't quite right. The farmer's late, he's never late. Suddenly, the door flings open, and you see all your family and friends being trotted out to a truck when they're going to be someone's Christmas lunch. And it was all working so well up to that point. So these get-rich-quick schemes, fine for people that understand that that's what they are, and they've got money they can invest in and lose in its entirety and it not affect them. Other people are being sucked in by social media, I see a lot of it, on people that aren't advisors or not qualified, and they get spellbound by this get-rich-quick scheme. Mm. And you and I know that there really is no such thing as a get-rich-quick scheme unless you get lucky with a buying a lottery ticket. So these things are worrying um, that people will put more money they can afford to lose in these what happens to be working now, flavor of the day, flat, bad of the month. I've only invested clients' money in things that have always worked. And what's always worked is a huge collection of the largest, most profitable businesses on the planet. Um, and when it's very cheap to invest and you just hold on to the coattails of the most successful businesses that the people like you and I use every day of our lives without thinking twice about it. They will have tough times, but by and large, they've been around for decades, and more often than not, collectively, thousands of them collectively make profits. That, historically, has always worked for a long-term investor, someone who's patient and can keep their head on straight. And do you think that perhaps the patient side of things, you know, being in it for the long game, we talked about certain things being against human nature. Do you think that that, in some ways, is also against human nature as well, and we're also having to kind of challenge that in the financial advisory world to you know get people to buy into you know playing the long game being patient with their investments and seeing the returns over that longer period yeah there's a couple of misconceptions um if you think about it one misconception about investing let's just use let's just use retirement planning as an example if you're 
let's say at 25, you decide you think you ought to start making steps towards securing yourself a retirement. And let's just say you pay into one vehicle, a typical one that most people have as a, as a private pension or a work pension. So you're under the misconception that they're only they're going to be investing for maybe 25, 35 years, and, and then at 60, they're going to retire. But that's not the case. They will remain invested until the day they die, because where do you think income's going to come from? If, if you've been investing successfully for 35 years, and then you get to retirement, and let's just say for argument's sake that that investment historically has made an average return of, say, 6%. Why would you then make a conscious decision to move yourself into a much, much lower risk environment where with the best will in the world, it may only make 2%, barely meeting inflation? You've got to ask yourself, well, where's my income going to come from? The primary objective of any money that anyone owns, wherever it's held, is to maintain its purchasing power. Can I maintain my standard of living in the years to come? Can I buy the same goods and services I enjoy year after year? And if your capital is at least keeping pace with the cost of living, then you'll never suffer a, a drop in the standard of your living. So <clears throat> it's a misconception as far as retirees are concerned that you don't invest until your retirement stops. If you're 25, there's a good chance you could be invested one way or the other for the next 60-odd years. Mm. And statistically in the UK, a married couple, one of them is going to hit mid to late 80s. That's a long time to invest. And the long-time uh, investor in the stock market stretches out the humps and the bumps along the way. If you looked at weeks and months, you'd have a very up and down jagged line. If you convert that to decades, it's a very smooth trajectory. I've told clients all the time, investing money is a little like walking upstairs with a yo-yo in your hand. The yo-yo is going up and down, but at the end of your journey at the top of the stairs, you, you have finished higher up the stairs than when you started, albeit the yo-yo has been going up and down while it's in your hand. Mm. But I tried to use these types of analogies to get through to people. I think, okay, that makes sense. I can, I can understand that resonates. Um, but yeah, the way to make money in the market is to be patient, keep costs low, remain highly diversified, look at it periodically and do something more interesting with your life and let time do its thing. Yeah, and obviously over time, inflation does take effect. And that's a word that we mentioned just now as well. And obviously what you need to make sure in your investments is that over the years you can continue to purchase the same goods and services and make sure you maintain that same purchasing power or even enhance it if possible so inflation we've got to take that into account with our investments but obviously when it goes wrong it can also be you know something which can have a very detrimental impact can't it yeah um, inflation is one of the biggest I call it the silent assassin, the inflation monster. It's like an odorless gas that you'd be wary of in your home because it, it never goes away. It's always there in the background lurking, but most investors don't consider it or maybe not even have a concept of it. They just don't consider what they're investing. And again, there's another analogy that you can use to try. I use to try and get the point across to people to just show them what that means. So if I tell people, imagine you're going through a nice wedding and you're all in your finery and you're meeting for a pre-wedding drink and you're catching up with friends and family. And the centerpiece of this wedding is the most incredible ice sculpture of a swan. I mean, it's magnificent. The detail is incredible. And everybody's marveling at it. They're walking around it and taking pictures and thinking, that looks incredible. And there's a, there's a big drip tray underneath it. And there isn't a drop of water in there. And you think, that really is impressive. Time moves on. You go to the wedding ceremony. You come back a few hours later. 
you relax, have some more drinks, you go back to where the, the swan ice sculpture is, and you're looking at it, and you think, that, that is the same sculpture, isn't it? It, it? I can sort of see it's the swan. It's, I can make out the beat. It, you know it is the same swan, but it doesn't look like anything it was so majestically a couple of, year, a couple of hours earlier. And then you look in that tray, and there's a lot of water in that tray. And that is the pervasive erosion of people's capital. Inflation is just drip, drip, dripping away people's purchasing power. Now, it's obviously good to have cash on the hip, money in the hole in the wall for everyday emergencies. If you're in that position to have that, it's a good comfort blanket. In our profession, normally say if you've got six months living expenses behind you, for most people, that's a good comfort blanket that you can turn to if, if something goes wrong. But if you're sitting on capital long term with no reason to do so, you know, years and years and years, then compound interest can work for you and it can work against you. And inflation is a negative compounding effect. So your capital continually gets eroded, compound, by whatever the annual inflation. Now, obviously, we live in an, at the moment, we're in an unprecedented, you know, not in living memory for most people, situation with inflation. And it will come down. It's a temporary thing, but it's tough for a lot of people at the moment. But if you've got your capital sat in a bank account long term with no intention or no need to spend any of it, and you're you're earning half a percent, and inflation this year is ten percent, well, if you've got a hundred thousand pound in there, this time next year it's going to be worth just a little over ninety. That is very significant. So, what alternatives have you got? The only alternative is to try and place your money in an environment commensurate with your sort of attitudes of risk and understanding of that, well, you've got a chance of offsetting the damaging effects of that. Now, long-term inflation in the UK is approximately 2 2.5% a year. And investors have historically seen returns for someone who's invested in a highly diversified and competitively priced contract. They've seen historic returns beat inflation by three to four times on an annual basis over the long term. Not every year, because It'd be nice if it did that, but historically, over a stretched period, those are the returns. So if you're getting a return as good as or above inflation, then your capital is actually growing if it's above inflation. So, yeah, there's a lot of people sat on cash or cash ISAs, and they think they're in a low-risk investment, whereas cash for the long-term investor is one of the riskiest investments you could possibly have. It's akin to me saying to you, I've got a wonderful investment opportunity for you, you put your money into this vehicle over here, and it's guaranteed to only lose 2.5% every year. Well, you'd be asking for the men in the white jackets to take me away. Yet the reality is that there are millions of people who are sat on cash long term with no need to be doing it. And the eroding part, the, the inflation is just, you know, having a devastating effect on their, on their purchasing power. Mm. And while all of that's happening, um, what are some of the alternatives perhaps that these people ought to be looking at, you know, to put their money in what might seem a more risky environment, but actually is going to give them a better return? Yeah, I mean, risk is a difficult subject um, <clears throat> to, to explain to people because you have to have context. If you if you stopped 100 people in the street and said, what's your attitude to risk? I mean, you could be forgiven for them to be flippant and say, well, what, jumping out of a plane, crossing a road, getting on a train, getting out of bed in the morning, investing in the stock market? You have to have context to it. Mm. And I think the easiest way to explain risk is most people think risk, well, I can lose all my money. Well, if if you're in a, 
extremely highly diversified investment with thousands and thousands of companies and you're paying a really competitive price for it, there's only really two ways that you could lose all your money. Either one, someone like presses the red nuclear button and it's game over anyway. And that money would be meaningless. Or number two, a meteor hitting the earth and having the same Armageddon effect. If you remove those two Armageddon scenarios off the table, but you still think you could lose all your money and function as a society without banks, insurance companies, retailers, fuel, tech companies, utility companies, it, it, it wouldn't happen. Those companies have been around forever and they'll continue to be around unless something wipes them off the face of the earth. So explaining risk, you've got to put it into context. So what I say to clients is if you understand and subscribe that historically, using a long-term view, there aren't a lot better ways of making your capital work harder than investing it in a collection of the most profitable companies in the world, a huge collection of them. Then if you look at a scale of one to 10, and someone says, well, what's the difference between a three or a five or an eight? Well, it's really quite simple. If you, like I said, if you subscribe to it, okay, I accept that, putting my money in the stock market over thousands and thousands of companies for years and years and years, I get it. I've, I've done the evidence, I've done my own due diligence, I can see that I've worked over historically. All the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten means is how much of your money do you place in that area? So if you come out as a five out of ten, you might have 50% of your capital within that fund in the stock market and the other 50% in lower risk, lower reward, lower volatility areas. If it's eight out of ten, then your 80% of your money would be in the areas that have historically produced the best return. Or conversely, you're a two out of ten cautious risk averse, you must understand that only 20% of your money will be invested in the areas that have historically produced the best returns, and 80% will be in lower risk, lower reward, and lower volatility areas. So I think until people can accurately grasp what this thing risk is all about, and, and taking a long-term history into what's happened before, I think it then begins to give them a, a much deeper understanding and it blows away all the cobwebs and all the nonsense that they've been carrying around in their heads when they think it's one thing, when it's actually something else. I mean, I personally think a lot of this stuff should be taught in schools, mm. the basics, the, the areas I'm talking about, because if there was more education from a younger age, there would be far less complaints in our profession and significantly better client outcomes because they would understand and their expectations would be managed better. Exactly right. And um, industry can't just play a part in that, can it? I mean, it is something that, you know, ministers have to take on board, the DfE has to take on board, and schools have to uh, sort of bring into the uh, the curriculum, don't they? And uh, But I, th- I think you're very, very right. I mean, this is something that is completely sort of omitted from what we're taught at an earlier age, and there's merit for it actually being sort of thrown in there during our formative years. Yeah, they, they, I mean, you know, two things they don't teach you at school. I mean, I, I wrote a book recently, um, Your Money and Your Life, How to Get a Better Return on Your, on your Life and Your Money. Mm. Two things they don't teach you at school. They don't teach you how to go to work at school. You know, you get away with murder at school, a lot of people do, and then suddenly you're in the worldwide, the real world, and employer won't accept the way maybe some people have behaved at school. So they don't teach you how to go to work at school. And the second thing is they don't really teach you the long-term benefits of some of the stuff I've been explaining today. Mm. You know, imagine, I mean, I, if I knew what I know now when I was 18 or 19 with a bit of discipline, I mean, you know, I've sadly calculated I've retired at 45. <laughs> but, you know, I'm, you know, I'm to one of the thing and experience is that one thing you get just after you needed it. 
So that's part of the reason I wrote the book is to get these lessons out there. It's not all about money. It's about things I just wish I'd known when I was younger and it would have got me further down the line than where I am now at a critical point in time. But I do highlight some of those issues in there and convey the, the, the really important points that people need to understand because it will save them thousands of pounds and heartache and a lot of time. But I don't understand why a lot of these things aren't taught at school. I mean, I've, I've been asked to speak at some Plymouth University and College of Plymouth in front of six formers and some of the teachers and the faculty, and I've conveyed these things to them. And a lot of those those kids at school didn't even understand how compound interest works. They, they didn't have any concept of it because I ran through uh, an example with them. I used, I used a story which sort of blew their minds a little bit. And until they got the scientific calculators out, they really had no concept of it. And I thought, well, if you could imagine, if you could understand the rewards and understand how compound interest can work for and against you at an earlier age, you might be a little bit further down the line in your 20s and 30s than you otherwise would be. Understandably so as well. And uh, obviously, in the world that we're currently in at the moment, you know, out of the acute phase of the COVID pandemic, but at a point in time where there are a lot of global forces in place. So, you know, there are lingering supply chain issues, rampant inflation, the war in Ukraine, lockdowns in China and the impact that that's having. Very, very, very interesting environment for investment in general at the moment. So over the next sort of six to 12 months, let's say, uh, just before we wrap things up, Mike, um, what are your sort of priorities going to be with some of your clients and what are you sort of really hoping to achieve for them over that period of time in this environment that we're in? So basically, if I did have a client that rang up and had a serious wobble because the markets are, you know, you know, sort of volatile, particularly more volatile than they generally are at the moment, mm. my first question for them to say, right, first off, was has your life plan changed? Has anything changed since I last spoke to you when you were going to do this then and that then? Has the plan changed? Now, most people say, well, no, the plan's not changed. I said, if the plan's not changed, you have to stick to the plan. We discussed that these things can do and will happen. They've happened before, they'll happen again. If it's not one thing, it's a tsunami, it's a 9-11, you know, it's a tech bubble, it's a run on the banks. It's a, you know, we've been through some pretty tough times over the last hundred years. So I say, you, you must stick to the plan because if you try to jump in and out of the market or, or disinvest me and please put me into cash, then I'm going to say to a client, okay, it's your money. I'm not recommending you do this, but do not ask me when to get back into the stock market because I can't tell you when that's going to happen. Warren Buffett, with all the resources he has at his disposal, will readily admit he cannot find the stock market. He just knows it goes up over time because the wheels of commerce keep turning. So if I get a client who rings me and they say to me, I'm really having a wobble, I think I want to move into cash for the time being and let this storm pass. History proves conclusively it's probably one of the worst decisions they'll ever make. The, the chances of them getting it right when they get back in, they'd have missed half of the recovery before they get the nerve to go back into the market. Mm. And then the damage has been done. It's a bit like, it's a bit like, I mean, it's funny, isn't it? I wonder what we would behave like in the UK if property prices were recorded every day. Mm. The stock market is, the property market isn't. It's only recorded, you know, annually. Most people look at it. Yet the stock market's recorded every day, but not the property. But imagine you had a house worth 100,000 pounds and they said properties dropped 20%. You're not going to rush out and sell your property at 80,000 and make a loss and then go into rented for the hassle and the, and the financial damage. But imagine if you did, 
imagine if you did go out and sell your house and said, oh, it's going to, it's going to drop further, I'm going to sell. Then you sit on £80,000 in the bank, that gets eroded by having to rent somewhere. And then property comes back to its normal prices. Then you attempt to buy your old house back, which has gone back up to 100 or 110, but you've only got 80,000 pounds left to buy it with. Now that's a crazy example, but mm. that's what some people are endeavoring to do if they're uneducated or they don't have someone who can coach them and counsel them to say, look, your circumstances haven't changed. Stick to the plan and ride this out. It's the roller coaster. This is the volatility. Yeah. It's not permanent loss unless you make it happen. So it's trying to keep those people's heads on straight and I'm constantly, constantly educating them. Like I said, 70% of what I do, 70% is managing people's behavior, highlighting financial biases that all humans are affected by and making sure that my clients don't get blindsided by them or fall foul of them, fall foul of them. It's keeping that cool head, isn't it? Sort of going against that kind of human nature in a sense and above all, being patient and playing the long game, as we've discussed already, isn't it? Yeah, just to finish off, the, the most one of the most dangerous biases that humans suffer from, and this is prevalent right this moment, is something called recency bias. Mm. And recency bias is the human bias that we tend to only consider what's happened recently or what's going on now, and we our brains trick us into thinking this is what it's going to be like in the future. That is one of the reasons why people make mistakes and do the wrong thing. There are a whole host of biases from financial decision-making, but the one that's at the forefront of people's minds now is recency bias. They're flooded with the bad news on the press and the radio and the TV, the media, and they think, oh, we've had this the last two years, now it's looking at this for the next 12 months. And recency bias can steer their brains to making a wrong decision by bailing out at the wrong time and, and cementing a temporary loss the roller coaster, you know, the upside down and the roller coaster, were, uh, as opposed to the volatility. So it's just making sure people are aware of these. I mean, if I do that, if I can make them aware of all these pitfalls, there's a good chance that they won't fall for them as often as they might have in the past. Exactly. It's jumping the gun, isn't it? Just making sure people don't pull out too soon and plenty of food for thought for anybody, of course, listening in who is interested in investing or indeed has money in the markets and um, if, of course, you are listening in today as well and, uh, you know, you do want to look a bit more into this and actually sort of find some advice on all of this yourself, um, one of the best places yeah. to go for your business, Mike, is uh, manningandco.co.uk. That's your website, isn't it? That's the company website. And my client education website is www.saver, that's S-A-V-E-R, saverbehavior.co.uk. Uh, and that's a website built exclusively around financial education, plain English, no jargon. And there's a lot of 60 second, 90 second animated explainer videos, which cover a lot of the things I've covered today in a visual way. And it's meant the website's meant to be thought provoking uh, and to make you think. And it shows you, I mean, I've got a little bit of calculator on there where if you put your date of birth in, whatever your date of birth in, it tells you how much you would have made if you had been able to invest one pound a day into the S&P 500, the standard and poorest 500 largest companies in America, using historic data. It tells you, had you put in a pound a day from the day you were born, it tells you how much you would have put in, in other words, how many days you've been alive, and then it instantly calculates what the compounded return on that amount of money would have been. And for someone who's been around 30, 40, 50, 60 years, they can hardly comprehend the figure they see in front of them. And that's the power of compounding over the long term through thick and thin. So I've got a lot of quirky little calculators, a lot of quirky little videos, some humorous bits and pieces, 
it's all designed around education, 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 and trying to get clients to have optimum outcomes. Absolutely incredible. So certainly do look for those resources. Anybody tuning in, if you are interested in finding out more, um, Mike, absolute pleasure once more welcoming you onto the program to talk about these aspects of investments and incredibly thought provoking as well. And as usual, um, I'd relish the opportunity to welcome you back onto the show in future to talk more about sort of how sort of the market is developing during this sort of particularly volatile time because it is going to change. There will be the upturns, and those patient enough, they're going to reap the rewards, aren't they? Absolutely, the patient investor is the best. The ones who get the best return. History proves it conclusively. Exactly right, um, Mike. Once more, real pleasure welcoming you onto the show again, and do take care and do stay safe with all that's still going on. That's great to talk to you. Short. Thanks ever so much. An immense pleasure once more to welcome Mike Legasic, Director and Behavioural Investment Coach at Manning & Company, onto today's show. And I do hope that everybody thoroughly enjoyed the interview today. Just a reminder, of course, to anybody who would like to find out more about Manning & Company, you can visit the business website at manningandco.co.uk. And also for some of Mike's uh, financial investment tips, you can visit saverbehaviour.co.uk as well to find out more information on that side of things and certainly would recommend you do. To anybody else tuning into the programme today um, who might be, of course, a business owner themselves or may run their own organisation, who might feel that, you know, you have your own story of success to share with us here at the Leaders' Council, then you too can also apply to be on the show via leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply because we'd certainly love to hear from you as well. Um, Until next time, to every single one of our listeners, do take care and goodbye.